Hi, this is Alex Snee, the CEO and founder of Divergence Neuro, and you're listening to the Neuro Nudo Network Podcast. Welcome to Neuro Noodles, Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast, featuring our neuropsychologist Dr. Laura Jansons, Dr. Skip Wren, and neurofeedback legend Jake Unkelman. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. This is an all-star cast that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. My name is Pete, and today we have a special guest, Alex Nee from Divergence Neuro. But before we start, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters, Outrageous Baking, Tour Talk, Alternative Behavioral Therapy, EEG and Me, Mara, Sadia M, and Jonathan Rowan, January Terrell. Happy New Year, guys. Outrageous Baking is a dedicated gluten-free bakery that's been around for 15 years. Tor Talk wants more people to discover text-to-speech because listening to text can increase efficiency and reduce stress. And Joshua M. at Alternative Behavioral Therapy is his neurofeedback service in Vancouver, Washington. How are you doing, Joshua? Please give us five stars in Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out. If they can't hear us, we can't help them. Okay, today we have Alex Nee from Divergence Neuro. This is a big uh, Divergence Neuro month. Alex, welcome to the show. Please give us your background. How'd you get started, Mr. CEO of Divergence Neuro? Well, thanks, Pete. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure being here. Um, you know, how I got started in this is really uh, sort of by accident. In 2015, I was recruited to be the, the chief technology officer of uh, another neurotech startup by the name of Avertus. We were focusing uh, at the time of coming up with our own dry wireless EEG device. And a big part of that um, is having the AI-driven algorithms to help us predict epileptic seizure onset as well. So, you know, it's, it's half software, half, half hardware. So it was really kind of a comprehensive tour um, you know, to what neurotech really is about, you know, from an EEG perspective, right? So uh, that's, got, that's that's like, I guess you can call how I got bit by the bug. Uh, once sure. you learn so many wonderful things about how, what you can do with EEG, you know, it's, just, it's hard to walk away. And, uh, and, and yeah, so years later, um, you know, I met Heather, uh, sort of a, the, the idea co-founder of Divergence, um, you know, because she was bugging me to, to look at using the possible um, uh, uh, you know, collaboration of that dry wireless device to use that for neural feedback. And I've never heard of neural feedback before that point. So that's kind of how we got started and, uh, and, and why I'm here uh, where I am. So, yeah. And Jay, Jay's done a lot of work uh, with your company. How, Jay, how did you get started uh, with, with these guys? I mean, everybody's using your information. You've been around <laughs> forever, but uh, how'd you find them? Oh, uh, well, uh, I've been around forever, um, and <laughs> and I'm, yes. I'm not that hard to find. So uh, um, uh, they, they had some questions about uh, uh, EEG uh, and specifically DMT effect on EEG, and uh, they had a, a stack of uh, recordings um, of people uh, being exposed uh, to both placebo as well as DMT and um, uh, I, I took the opportunity to go through the raw EEG and process it out a little bit so that they could have a, uh, kind of a, a crude level, uh, a, a 30 second at a time, uh, view of what the spectrum of the EEG was doing under the influence. And, uh, during that, we also, uh, tried to identify some, uh, features within the EEG that might, uh, end up being, uh, features of concern. 
Um, uh, and my work previously on uh, e.g. endophenotypes uh, ends up uh, being somewhat useful in this respect. Uh, we, we previously had identified uh, in, a, in a, a cluster analysis of a large data set uh, of uh, patients that had failed psychiatric medication uh, what EG features predicted the medication failure. And uh, using that information, I hypothesized that there were a couple of EG endophenotype types that would end up being potentially problematic for uh, use with DMT or psilocybin or any of the uh, dissociatives, ketamine, et cetera. And, uh, you know, the uh, not everybody has um, a, a pleasant outcome uh, uh, with ketamine. There's the the, the dreaded K hole. Um, you can end up having uh, 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 psilocybin trips that have uh, longer standing uh, uh, negative consequences, and uh, uh, psychotic episodes can be triggered with the dissociatives. So. Uh, being able to predict a little bit ahead of time who needs to be looked at as a potential um, high-risk uh, exposure client uh, um, is something that I was uh, trying to help with. Uh, I pointed to unexpected epileptiform content. If you don't know that they've got epileptiform content in the EEG, how can you avoid overstimulating them with, with a medication? And, um, and obviously, uh, uh, epileptiform content can end up triggering uh, psychiatric disturbances. A third of all uh, psychotic patients have epileptiform content in their EEG. Um, so, and and it's, it pops up in an unexpected way in clinical groups as well. About, uh, uh, about 25% of the ADD population, uh, the ADD, ADHD population, uh, 60% of the autism uh, about 12% of the anxiety disorders. Uh, so uh, uh, almost half of those with Tourette uh, syndrome. So, you know, you, we've got um, a high probable uh, interaction between the EG, uh, you know, findings that are kind of a warning sign. And uh, if you're just randomly taking in patients for, exposure um, without uh, any kind of a screening, you may end up having uh, kind of a surprise difficulty. Um, the other pattern other than epileptiform content was uh, spindling excess beta, which isn't just some beta in the EG, it's, it's gigantic uh, beta, bigger than 20 microvolts, uh, hypersinusoidal uh, uh, content. And uh, that, that's quite commonly seen in bipolar um, it's, it's a subset of ADD, ADHD, it's hyperexcitable cortex. And again, tossing things that have a stimulating property uh, in on top of uh, something like that can end up having a negative consequence. So, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I, I can't help but stick my nose in everybody's business and uh, uh, giving out uh, consults without fees basically uh, uh, brings me into a few different locations to have people listen to my babbling. So, um, <laughs> uh, and they and they didn't shut down the Zoom meeting when I was talking, so I, it must have gone okay. So, 
Now, we had a lot of listener response asking about uh, ketamine and uh, uh, the psychedelics. I, I'm guessing that in dealing with depression would be a, a, a number one symptom that you would look at in dealing with this. When would you use neurofeedback? When would you use ketamine? When would you use psychedelics? Uh, Help the new people out there. Don't use them at all. Well, uh, if Alex has something to say on it, I'll let him go first. But, you know, me, just press start, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I think, uh, you know, it's a great question, Pete. And and there's been a lot of literature from uh, my observation. I will disclaim everything that I'll say with the fact that I'm not a, a therapist nor a qualified doctor. So what I'm seeing is, is actually from, you know, kind of a relatively unbiased third party, um, you know, in terms of someone that makes tools to, to enhance the connection between the therapist, the clinicians and, and their patients. Um, so what we notice is this um, overarching approach of integrating, um, you know, psychedelics such as ketamine, uh, uh, psilocybin and so on with, um, um, uh, physiological treatment um, modalities such as neurofeedback, then the reason being predominantly that, you know, uh, psychedelics, uh, psychedelic compounds alone isn't going to, uh, uh, by any means, guarantee the outcome, especially when it comes to uh, patients not relapsing and, and, and increasing overall remission rate. Um, you know, what we often find is, is well, not we, but, but the, the psychedelic research community, I should be very careful around this, um, is that, you know, with the right set and setting, uh, with the right proper methodology for integrating uh, the benefits uh, obtained during the psychedelic session, um, you know, that would amplify the longitudinal outcome. So it'll increase remission, it'll uh, reduce relapse in a longitudinal view. Um, you know, as opposed to sort of naively uh, uh, treating patients with psychedelics without any change of integration and set and setting. So I think that's where neurofeedback really comes in. And, and uh, Dr. Jeff Tarn has an excellent talk um, <clears throat> that I can share with all of you uh, in regards to how uh, to integrate, you know, neurofeedback and neuromeditation, particularly, which, you know, something Dr. Tarn is an expert in, uh, in the world, into ketamine therapy to help people uh, are really uh, integrating the benefit of, of the drug. So I think that's that's really the, the um, a focal point of conversation. How do we improve? Um, uh, and the other aspect is how do we improve the assessment? Because not every drug is suitable for every individual. You know, there's a lot of, you know, Robin Carr Harris talks about this, this idea of pre-state, state, and, and, and post-state. So, uh, and this is really the neurological composition in terms of neurocorrelates as a foundation uh, of an individual. You know, you, you really have to have a very decent grasp on this because otherwise, you know, the consequences can be can be uh, uh, less than ideal or even uh, tragic. You know, if you uh, if you treat it, uh, the patient that's in the wrong state, um, and and you know, all of these can be um, the domain uh, where you know neurophysiology, EEG based brain mapping assessments, neurofeedback um, uh, can add immense value uh, in that process. So. That, that's that's what I'm my uneducated opinion is. So, so, so ketamine, ketamine is the the IV, right? It yeah, yeah, be, it's off. It can, can be, be given IM. nasally as well. Yeah, it can be nasal, can be IM, can be IV. Okay, and the the uh, injected form basically ends up usually being more uh, potent 
um, uh, the the sessions are uh, reportedly a little bit more intense than a than a nasal. However, um, uh, the 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 pattern in the brain that you're targeting with the ketamine is, I think, uh, or any of the dissociatives, is I think an important aspect of what we're looking at. Um, uh, you know, uh, TMS is a way to treat depression. Uh, and it has uh, an established application. And uh, there's a group that patented the use of ketamine or any of the other dissociatives along with TMS, but they don't target just the left frontal spot that that the classic DSM-oriented targeting with TMS does. They basically look at the brain and find a thalamocortical dysrhythmia, uh, which is a specific pattern it's a slowed alpha rhythm that slows down into the theta frequency band and it's surrounded by gamma. And when you see that pattern, that's the biomarker that they point the TMS magnet at. And it, it, they're, they're not looking for a left frontal or right frontal or midline or posterior. When they find that target, that's what the TMS is pointed at. And the ketamine allows the TMS to be done with a higher intensity. I mean, you can do oral surgery on ketamine. So, you know, a, a, a little uh, muscle twitch that might be a little uncomfortable or distracting isn't going to be much of a distraction when you're on ketamine. So instead of 80% of the motor threshold or, you know, find what makes the motor threshold twitch and then turn it down a little bit, they find what tr- makes the motor tr- threshold twitch and turn it up. So it's a much more intense pulse, um, and uh, they, they report even better outcomes than um, the, the uh, classic uh, TMS researchers. Now, you have to take into account that this is a group that's patented an approach, and you know their data showing their outcome to be superior to everyone else's outcome, yeah, you know, it's like a drug company funding their own research. You've got to think twice about believing it fully. So uh, I, I'll hold back on saying it's the best thing since sliced bread, but um, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it's a tempting approach. I worked with a, a psychiatric group in New York um, uh, and, uh, and I was on the TMS uh, planning uh, clinical TMS society's planning committee for five years. So I have a little bit of experience in it. I, I actually gave the talk on thalamocortical dysrhythmia targeting with TMS uh, at the last meeting I could attend. Uh, it, it was the highest attended breakout session they'd ever had. We actually ran out of room in the room. Uh, I'd say it was standing room only, but they were sitting in the center aisle as well. The fire marshal should have shut us down, you know, um, but it, uh, it, it's a way to uh, 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 pick the medication, not based on the DSM subjective complaint, which is, you know, I, I, I've got depression, doc, uh, whatever that means to the person. I mean, you can have depression. I'm sad. I'm boohoo. My, my mood is terrible. You can have depression. I'm, I don't have any motivation. I lack initiation. You know, I, I don't have any get up and go. That's a totally different presentation. You can have an agitated depression or anxiety-based depression. Again, a totally different presentation. 
And it's, it's basically the same problem in a different aspect of the frontal lobe's neural network. And uh, you can see that in the data, independent of listening to the story. You know, you should listen to the story with as much empathy as you can muster, but um, you know, set that story aside, look at the data, uh, uh, trust the data because the data doesn't change, the stories do. And uh, um, at that point, you've got a reliable target. What we found in the psychiatric practice that if we found theta frequencies at the frontal midline, uh, at that point, we looked at the EG a second time with independent component analysis. And if that theta and gamma were in the same component, we had a dysrhythmia. And that gave us a target that we could shoot the TMS magnet at along with ketamine. And they had very good outcomes. Uh, they did present their uh, data on a poster at, at one of the meetings, but, you know, poster sessions, you know, it's a heck half the posters people you know are drinking their wine and they walk by and nod their head and 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 you know they they look at a couple of headlines and if it's not in their area they just go to the next poster so you know thalamocortical dysrhythmia and you know ketamine aren't exactly tms you know prime areas of of concern so i think the poster was a little undervalued perhaps but um uh uh uh, the, the use of any of the dissociatives uh, to end up improving brain function uh, is still obviously a, an emerging uh, area of application, uh, but it appears to be very powerful. Um, if, if you think of it, the, uh, uh, the dissociatives and hallucinogens actually increase the, uh, uh, the neural network connectivity. And uh, some of the disconnection that happens uh, in the uh, frontal lobe disorders uh, ends up being fixed by that added connectivity. You can reconnect disconnected networks. And now once you connect something, you need to end up fostering those connections. If you don't use it, you will lose it. Uh, if you fire them together, they were wired together. So if you get... Uh, and enhance connectivity during a uh, session, you need to foster that uh, with, the, with a therapeutic follow-on um, and the, the, the guide that helps you uh, go through your session ends up being a critical piece of that experience. And I, I think uh, uh, that, that the, the groups that are working on hallucinogens that are responsible are setting up longer term assessments, um, getting the set proper, uh, uh, making sure you're paired up with good therapists that can end up helping with any un untoward experience and help guide the experience of the individual and help kind of debrief them at the end to consolidate the, uh, what's been learned in the session. Um, obviously DMT uh, is a, a quicker uh, you, you can do that in a one-hour scheduled appointment with a doctor. Um, psilocybin, not so much a one-hour trip. Uh, you, you know, so you, you've got your day set for that, and and they usually want multiple professionals um, if you're going to be taking a psilocybin trip. Um, you know, uh, uh, it, it, it's an all-day event, and you, you can't take a break. So having a tag team ends up helping. 
uh, so it's expensive. Multiple days, multiple therapists. Um, you, you know, the the, the uh, psilocybin uh, clinics can cost a fair amount, um, and uh, DMT can bring it down to a single doctor in a single hour in a single session. Uh, so uh, there, uh, the DMT appears to be something that is able to be fit, force fit into the clinical model of a, a one hour consulting session. And uh, so there's a lot of move uh, in that area. And uh, uh, Alex has worked with uh, companies that are researching DMT uh, as, a, as a commercial uh, you know, uh, product basically. And I, I think discussing some of that would end up helping Alex. Thank you, Jay. That was a very <clears throat> comprehensive uh, um, introduction of the, the pharmacodynamics of how some of these things work. And I really always appreciate listening to you uh, uh, talk about those things. Uh, we have, as you said, uh, been working with, <clears throat> you know, uh, Entheon Biomedical, among others, in, in terms of helping uh, these companies develop a uh, DMT-based response model and prediction model based on evidence uh, that are collected uh, you know, in terms of neural correlates, uh, in terms of subjective outcome surveys. And what we're trying to do is correlate those two aspects together um, to build some sort of response prediction model uh, whereby we can look at <clears throat> the responders, for example, um, compare their uh, subjective measurement scores like the QID scores or, or other things, um, couple that with neural correlate change before and after dosing. So what we're also interested in is what exactly happens um, to the well-known neural correlates that indicates immersion, you know, during the experience of, of psychedelics. So, um, you know, for, for DMT, what I'm talking about, if you read um, uh, Timmerman uh, and Roseman and, and uh, Robin Carr Harris' literature from Imperial, um, is things like alpha disappearance and, and lymphozyte uh, which is the complexity score increase during experience and uh, more subtle cues as forward, backward, uh, cortical traveling waves. Um, so these are the things that can't always be um, uh, obvious in, in a naive kind of spectral analysis course, but uh, over the entire course of, of the dosing, um, if, you're, if you're looking at EEG as a snapshot, um, you end up picking some of these things out. Um, so what we're really interested in and this is the, the, the big million dollar question is, is among the responders, can we find enough um, reproducible correlates? Um, and then we can overlay that with dosing and, and um, other integration uh, that the individuals have had uh, and to come up with some sort of model that will allow us to predict what the responder model would look like um, you know, prior or during the treatment so that we can look at somebody's correlate before they even start the treatment and say, hey, what are the probabilities that you're going to respond to these kind of treatments and, and you know, um, not necessarily always why up front, but we can, we can at least start, in, uh, start from there. Uh, and we also could uh, benefit the clinicians that are administrating uh, these dosing uh, using some sort of uh, guidance uh, in terms of um, uh, pre-processed or post-processed patients EEG, uh, understanding where exactly they are. So these are the exciting areas of of work that we're doing using uh, using brainwave analysis tools. Depression and anxiety, would that be the two main symptoms that we would be looking to address here? And if so, when, when do people use neurofeedback? When do they use the psychedelics? When do they use the ketamine? There, there's so many alternatives here. I, 
me being the layman of the group, I mean, I, I've heard that ketamine is if you got a really tough case of depression, you go to ketamine. Is that, is that true or not true? What help help the poor moms and dads out there like me, Alex? The way, the way I think about it, and that's a great question, Pete. And I don't know if I'm fully qualified to give that advice, but um, yeah. what I will say is, you know, the, the way we're taught to understand these things is they're all tools and, you know, neurofeedback is sort of the, the workout for your brain, you know, uh, Heather Hargrave and, and Jeff Herring's always, you know, sort of emphasize this, this importance of looking at it as a uh, capability or resilience builder, right? So sort of like, you know, the difference between uh, a person that does neurofeedback and a person that doesn't sort of like the difference between someone that goes to gym constantly in terms of their muscular health and, and, and the resilience versus someone that does a, a very little physical exercise. Um, so it's an ongoing thing that uh, really shows efficacy in terms of building up resilience, whereas ketamine is kind of a power tool. Um, you know, like you said, if you've got uh, validated, uh, you know, sort of uh, major depressive that's treatment resistant you've tried just about everything else from talk therapy to whatever else um, and nothing seems to to uh, have you responding then perhaps you know um, a visit to uh, uh, your therapist to discuss the potential of using ketamine treatment would be a good option to look at i think you know the danger of, of kind of putting all these tools in the same bucket is, is of course if every you know, if everybody has a hammer, uh, everything starts looking like a nail. Uh, I don't think that ketamine is right for everybody who who has, you know, all sorts of different uh, uh, reasons for depression. Like Jay said, there are many different depressive profiles, you know, from, um, you know, felt kind of um, joyfulness to motivation to, um, you know, cognitive functions. And, and there are different lenses to look at depression. Um, so it's really kind of remiss to look at it as, well, all depression can be treated by ketamine. Not true. Um, so, but, but I think it's really important to start developing guidelines as to how we discern between, um, you know, the sort of uh, clinical roots or, or physiological roots of depression and, and really helps us discern and talk about what exactly could be the underlying cause before we go ahead and, and you know prescribe. So the one criticism, of course, um, uh, a lot of people are familiar with in terms of DSM-5 is that it, it's such a framework that relies on overprescription and overcategorization, very nuanced um, psychological and neurological phenomenon. So, you know, it, it attempts to sort of bucket everything under a score-based categorization, which is anything uh, but helpful. Um, so, you know, we're trying to do is the exact opposite. We're, we're breaking phenotypes down using, you know, biomarker-based correlates and combine that with narrative assessments. We can build a much more personalized, much more predictive, sensitive model in terms of how, you know, somebody's progressing in terms of, say, cognition, control, cognitive control or, or frontal executive function um, uh, uh, restoration, you know. Uh, and so these things lead to, you know, a manifestation of maladjustments such as uh, what we would call depression or, or a trauma response or, or anxiety. Um, so, you know, understanding those things are, are the key, in, in my opinion, uh, to help us do better in terms of uh, personalized medicine and personalized treatments um, to, to these conditions rather than, um, you know, basically continue to, to sustain this one size fits all over over prescription based and over categorization based framework. And I do think we can all agree uh, that depression isn't a serotonin deficit. 
you know, the, 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 the classical medical model is uh, uh, basically uh, not accurate. Um, and as tempting as it has been to think of it as a, a quick solution, it's not. Uh, not everybody responds to an SSRI. In fact, you know, if you look to the literature, uh, it's kind of a con game. Uh, I hate to say it, but um, you, you have what's called a placebo washout design. Everybody in the study gets a placebo. Whoever responds to the placebo is thrown out of the study. Now, the ones that are left are broken into a placebo group, but there are non-placebo responding placebo group and the treatment group. And then they can show that the SSRI is stronger than that placebo group. If you look at the people that were washed out of the study, it's a stronger effect than the pharma itself. They threw more people out of the study than responded to the drug. So um, that they've got a kind of a tilted pool table. Everything goes into the corner pocket. Um, uh, they set up the, the game uh, before they uh, publish the journal. And the, the journals are in on it. I mean, they get the, uh, the, the drug company buys a thousand copies of the journal and hands it out to doctor's offices, reprints. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's lucrative. Uh, for the publishers as well. So you end up with a, a, a tilted pool table, unfair game uh, level of proof. Um, and the effectiveness is somewhere around 40 plus percent. And I don't run to Vegas with the chances of 40% success. You know, I'm going to come back without as much as I went with, you know. So uh, why would you... Why? I mean, it, it, it's such a weak uh, uh, predictor. Now, if you have hypercoherent alpha at the anterior cingulate, now, especially if it's slower than 10, substantially slower than 10 uh, hertz, you have an 85% chance of a positive outcome. Uh, uh, that's not uh, using the symptom of depression to predict the drug use that's effective. It's look, looking at a biomarker that makes it effective. If you have OCD and anterior alpha that's slower than 10, you have an 85% positive likelihood of an SSRI working. So, you know, you, you have to actually uh, uh, look at what's being done clinically and the kind of the, the, the tilted pool table of, of the research uh, that's out there. So uh, um, if you're depressed, um, it, it's a, a symptom cluster. If you've had depression uh, only for a short period of time, ketamine is probably not your solution. Uh, the, the, um, uh, counseling uh, 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 work, um, uh, uh, seeing your uh, psychologist or psychiatrist to end up trying some of the pharma approaches that can work. And if you're having uh, multiple negative outcomes at that point, uh, some of the more uh, innovative approaches like ketamine and TMS or their combination end up being something that you can consider. 
TMS, for instance, the drug companies, depending upon the drug companies, want you to have failed talk therapy and at least two. Some drug companies, there's some insurance companies want three uh, pharma trials and uh, a, a full trial. Not, I gave it to them, they said they didn't like it and they quit. You, you got to give it a month or so of try to see whether it's going to be effective. If you can show that you've tried and tried and tried and, and nothing has worked, then the then the insurance companies will approve TMS for depression. Um, yeah, uh, and uh, ketamine is probably in about the same circumstance. If you've tried a few different ways, ketamine will probably come up as an alternative. Uh, it's becoming more and more commonly used. Um, uh, and, and again, um, uh, intranasal ketamine in an office visit is very common. Uh, infusion clinics are a little bit more complex, um, yeah, but uh, they're, they're, they're not uncommon at this point either. So, uh, um, yeah, um, uh, <laughs> you, you have to kind of watch uh, uh, the, if you, if you go to the doctor for the first visit and they recommend ketamine, uh, that, that's the whole world is nails and it's a hammer, you know, it's a, uh, uh, that that that's the one solution they have. Well, that, that that's jumping all the way to you know atomic bombs instead of trying something small first. And you you should go through the hierarchy of of attempts. Neurofeedback, as an example, you know neurofeedback doesn't have uh, serotonin withdrawal syndrome as a potential side effect of trying it. So uh, let let's uh, let, let's try some of these behavioral approaches. Uh, before we just jump into pharma sometimes as well. That's what I'm trying to figure out, these alternatives. What's the hierarchy? I, I know where it's not a be-all, end-all, hammers and nails, It's but it's you know ketamine, then TMS, and then I'm trying to figure out psychedelics. That's a new one, depending if it's illegal, legal or not in the area that you're doing it. I'm, how does psychedelics come into play? Because that came up last week, and it's the first time that I've, I've heard it. Where, where does that come in the spectrum of the hierarchy, guys? Uh, it's it, it's also like ketamine. It, it's one of the, you've already tried a whole bunch of other yeah. things before you end up getting referred for that. And obviously the local, you know, legal options are uh, a major consideration as well. You don't, as a therapist, want to go to jail because you're trying a therapy on somebody. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, I, I've got friends in the Netherlands that have been running psilocybin clinics for quite a few years now. So, uh, you know, it depends upon where you are and, and what's allowed under your local laws. Um, uh, if everybody books a flight to Amsterdam real quick, I can understand what's going on, you know. Uh, but it, um, it, there's locations in the U.S. that, that is, is, uh, psilocybin is legal now, too. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's not uh, uh, federally, uh, but locally, uh, uh, none of the law enforcement people are going to bust you locally. So, uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, kind of like some states allow uh, medical or recreational marijuana and some states you go to jail for the same thing. So you got to got to look and see what's going on locally, uh, even for uh, neurofeedback and and stimulation technologies, uh, you, you can also get in trouble uh, for doing that if you're doing something that's outside of your licensure. Uh, uh, in New York, 
uh, people that were uh, passing electrical currents through the head uh, for therapy uh, were uh, busted for practicing medicine without a license. Um, and and they, they were stopped from using uh, devices that were electrical stimulation of the brain uh, uh, in New York. Uh, other states, you know, it's, it's iffy as to whether one state will allow it or another one won't. Generally, uh, uh, stimulation technologies are uh, generally okay in the U.S. Uh, DC stim, AC stim, pulse DMF, the uh, various kinds of stimulation technologies, and they they also help uh, with mood regulation. You know, it, you you can activate a brain area with direct current or AC you know, alternating current uh, uh, or uh, pulsed EMF. So uh, um, you don't always have to have a $250,000 magnet uh, to, to end up influencing the, the, the cortex. Alex, what does a, uh, a psychedelic visit look like? Because uh, pe- people are asking, <laughs> I'm like, I, 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 I don't know. Well, listen, I, I mean, it's, it's uh, like Jay said, it's, it's been um, very much interesting. It's, it's heterogeneous depending on where you are. It's state by right, state. Right, right. And up here, it's a bit yeah. more federally driven in Canada. So the Canadian perspective, this is, you know, we're finally starting to have conversation. I think perhaps the pandemic had a lot to do with it. You know, um, <clears throat> we'll see the increase of demand of, of new solutions other than SSRIs, SNRIs, and talk therapy. Has, has almost necessitated this, this uh, conversation uh, across the board in Canada. Our medical regulatory body is, uh, as we speak, approving uh, you know, exception licenses for terminally ill patients to undergo federally uh, licensed psychedelic therapy using uh, either you know, sort of dopaminergic uh, psychedelic drugs or serotonergic psychedelic drugs, either you know, 2A disruptors like psilocybin and DMT or you know, um, uh, NMDA receptor antagonizers like ketamine. So you know, whether you're looking at yeah, giving your patients a dissociative experience or uh, a transcendent experience or you know, increasing their neuroentropic score in order to reprogram certain deeply embedded uh, uh, point of view or trauma, um, you know, there's no debate uh, from a medical point of view at this point that uh, psychedelics are, are um, uh, efficacious uh, when it comes to certain kind of uh, rewiring. Uh, the bigger conversation is how do we, you know, in the community, at least I'm noticing, uh, responsibly develop um, psychedelically assistive therapy in terms of um, pairing the, the drug with the appropriate assessment, uh, as Jay mentioned, uh, and I can't emphasize this enough, um, assessment is uh, such an important starting point because you don't, you don't assess somebody right, uh, rather categorically over-prescribing, over-diagnosing over them, um, it's not going to end well. It doesn't matter. A drug is a drug. Um, you know, it's like any drug. Um, you know, you should only apply it with caution and apply it with a, with a proper um, So the other important aspect, as I was saying, is, is really the, the process of integration. How do we develop, um, you know, appropriate integration process that can be tailored to each patient's um, background? You know, how does trauma um, awareness, how does the trauma lens come into play in, in this circumstance? So you know, I think a lot of the conversations are very healthy conversations, by the way, are being had. 
in the psychedelic um, therapy community to look at this on a broad scale, you know, in terms of decriminalization and in terms of um, responsible development uh, backed by open science. You know, some leaders in, in the field would be uh, MAPS in, in North America and uh, uh, Mind Foundation in Europe, uh, uh, both doing very large amount of studies in terms of, you know, getting scholars from, from Europe and North America to, to share data, to share discovery, and to really talk about how do we develop this together openly and, and transparently, right? So, so I think that's encouraging. You know, uh, there's always that danger, as I said before, to sort of look at psychedelics as a, as a silver bullet. And it's not a silver bullet. It's a drug. It's like any drug. And, you know, it's only to be used responsibly uh, with a responsible framework of assessment, uh, monitoring. And, um, um, yeah, so, so I think that needs to be uh, very, very clear. And, and appropriate follow-up as well. And that uh, it, it, uh, it, this isn't something where you go into the uh, office and uh, have have a visit and uh, end up having no follow up. Um, if there's not follow up to see whether there's ongoing cognitive process changes that are still in flux or not, uh, you can end up having somebody spin out after after they've gone home. And uh, so uh, you know. Uh, a 24-hour uh, follow-up, 72-hour follow-up is is a very, very common in, in responsible clinics. Uh, in California, you can spend $10,000 uh, at a psilocybin clinic uh, and, and have uh, assessment for a few days, um, a, a treatment and a follow-up. And uh, again, it's not inexpensive. Well, that model is not going to work on a, on a broad basis. Um, uh, it, it's fine for the uh, uh, tech executive from San Francisco to cross the bridge over to Marin and, and um, you know, uh, they, they can afford that $10,000 price without any trouble. Uh, but if, if you're scraping by and you're having uh, depressive suffering, uh, you shouldn't end up having to plunk down 10 grand uh, uh, for, for, your, uh, for your therapy. So uh, uh, working it out with DMT and, and uh, figuring out responsible ways to drive down the uh, overall expense and uh, um, at the same time, making sure that you've got all the guardrails in place that you need to have. Um, it, it's not just six hippies going out into the woods, finding mushrooms. I mean, this is, you know, the, um, this is not, uh, the, the 60s and 70s, um, uh, where, where that that was pretty much if you're going to run into psilocybin or peyote or something, you're, you know, it, it, it was a unique subset of the uh, individuals. Uh, uh, this is actually conservative psychiatry and medical practitioners uh, seeing the value in the outcomes uh, that these drugs can provide. And it, it, it's not just um, you know, uh, being done for the jollies, laying on your back, watching leaves go back and forth. I mean, uh, uh, as fun as any of that might have been, um, at, uh, we also uh, remember, uh, I can neither confirm nor deny, but we, we always remember uh, individuals that had difficult outcomes. Um, you know, everybody 
came back from the woods fine, except for little Joe, who uh, uh, who didn't have his head screwed on straight for about three weeks afterwards. So uh, um, we have to set it up so that we can uh, have the guardrails in place, uh, have a safe uh, a safe passage through the experience, and a, and a safe return. And I'm trying to sorry, Jay trying to swim to shore here. Uh, I feel like I should have a, a disguise on because uh, I'm licensed. <laughs> I have a, a, a license to practice psychology and neuropsych. So I, um, I don't know what this converse, conversation uh, uh, brings me, but uh, my, my reference point, I share a um, office space with a neurologist who does ketamine and uh, the walls are thin. And so it, uh, it seems like I'm sitting next to the uh, bowels of hell. Like the people are uh, having really strong, you know, air quotes, crazy reactions. And it's kind of frightening. And if I have a patient in my office, you know, and they hear, hear them howling and, and uh, you know, screaming in the next room, and they feel like it sounds like they're being tortured. It's, it's pretty kind of frightening for the, uh, for the average Joe to kind of witness these kinds of things. Yeah. Watch for the... Uh, uh, the the process can end up being rather uh, a wild ride at times. Uh, people's emotions and um, uh, all of that end, end up having quite uh, uh, quite a wild ride. But it, it's also done better if there's a pre-assessment and guides to end up uh, keeping the guardrails in place, so people don't spin off into a uh, into a K hole. Um, a, a, a ketamine uh, negative experience. Speaking of negative uh, experiences, we only got a few minutes left. Does, does anybody want to weigh on Antonio Brown? Uh, I've reached out to him a couple of times, uh, no response. Uh, seems to me like gymnastics, tennis, everybody seems to recognize mental health, but when it comes to the National Football League, uh, they, they, they can't seem to get their act together. Any thoughts on that, guys? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, um, uh, we, we've got Naomi Osaka and uh, Simone Biles and people that have handled it relatively responsibly. And uh, others have, in a more public way, uh, melted down uh, and, and kind of spun out uh, 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 from their position. And unfortunately, if you uh, don't set boundaries and hold them, people tend to spin out more readily. And I think that the, uh, that, that he was, uh, I think, uh, uh, coddled a little bit more early on than he may have should have been, but, you know, he's, he's still a, a wonderful person in some way and needs to be um, uh, handled well, not, uh, not shunned or disparaged. I mean, he's, He's obviously got issues, um, uh, but there's there's so many theories I've heard. Oh, it's CTE. Oh, it's yeah. bipolar disorder. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. We don't know. You know, <laughs> uh, who, who's the psychiatrist that's done the evaluation that tells us that, that it, it's a, a, it, it's a, some psychotic episode or something? You know, we 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 know. Uh, things didn't go well, but we don't know exactly how. We need to give him support. Um, we need to uh, uh, treat him properly. We don't need to foster any of his uh, difficult behaviors. I mean, he's this wasn't a one-off 
Uh, first time anybody ever noticed anything with him. I mean, he's got history, um, uh, but uh, again, he needs he needs to be uh, dealt with appropriately, therapeutically, not shunned or yeah. uh, that, that, anything that, such as that. That's my point. It's not so much Antonio Brown as the league that he's working for, because everything seemed to have happened after he got one heck of a hit, which I'll put on this video by a linebacker from the Cincinnati Bengals. Ever since he was knocked out, it, it's been downhill for, for him. And I, I don't know why. Uh, maybe they did look at his brain and, or, or whatever, but it uh, seems to me there's a lot of episodes of uh, th- these yeah. guys acting out after they've gotten a heck of a trauma. And uh, I don't see, at least publicly, what the, the National Football League or the NCAA is doing to uh, – help address the mental issues. Just my two cents. Uh, you I, know, I, I have no the, licenses other than a driver's. The, the, uh, and I don't have a driver's license anymore <laughs> myself. So uh, it, you don't want to be passing me on the left if I'm driving, you know? So, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, it, a, a, a significant brain injury can end up dramatically changing brain function. Uh, the individual may have brain function that's out of their voluntary control. Uh, they had their guardrails up before their guardrails been torn out uh, by a, a bad hit, uh, and uh, they, 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 they're out of control in some fashion. And it's not unusual. Um, uh, I've seen blows to the head turn people's personality around uh, from rational, sensible individuals to wild, impulsive craziness, the Phineas Gage um, sort of a personality change. Now, you don't have to have a, a, a railroad spike blown up through your head uh, in order to change your personality. A, a, a blow to the head will do it without having to have an iron you know, pass through your frontal lobes. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, but they, they, they're still, I think, as much as there's concussion protocols out there, uh, I, I think that they're still a little under-evaluated. Um, I think some of the newer technologies that are coming out now, uh, dry sensor uh, caps that can evaluate actual brain activity, as opposed to just, you know, are you seeing stars? How many fingers am I holding up? I mean, you know, uh, uh, follow my finger, uh, yeah, look yeah, at your yeah. pupils. I mean, uh, th- those are pretty crude test, you've got to pretty much have a, a major lesion in order to have pupil asymmetry or lack of responsiveness. Uh, 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 subtleties of brain change are there with head trauma. Uh, they're just, I think, under-evaluated. Luckily, the technologies are coming up. Uh, uh, if you look at the, the uh, Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas right now, uh, uh, there's uh, the, the Koreans, the iSync brain, have the iSync wave, which is a dry sensor 19-channel helmet that you can put on in 10 minutes. It does a full assessment of eyes open and eyes closed, and you get a result back uh, off an AI cloud uh, uh, pointing to what's going on with your brain function. And it's that kind of an assessment that's going to end up replacing some of these crude assessments that are out there now. Uh, but the technology just now is existing. Uh, the FDA approval on that is still probably 60 days out, uh, maybe 90 days, but it's happening. So um, 
you you can expect uh, uh, pretty major improvements in how things are treated going forward as technology is replacing more crude assessments that are present now. Luckily, the technologies are affordable enough. It's not like an MRI machine, which is going to cost you an arm and a leg. You know, a few hundred bucks a month gets you an assessment device. And a high school can afford that. Uh, uh, So on the sidelines, uh, having uh, your your brain assessed with an expert computer at a distance and a, a brain consultant to tell you whether things are uh, back to normal or not. You can have a baseline and look at changes from the baseline. So you can actually be assessed before the season starts. Uh, so that the, that the ability to assess head traumas is, is being developed as we speak, and uh, it'll end up uh, improving treatment going forward. Unfortunately, um, the, the, the current circumstance doesn't allow that full kind of assessment. And you can see the result. You know, a, a few major blows to the head, uh, 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 violent outbursts, uh, um, domestic abuse, uh, you know, things that follow. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's not a good outcome. Alex, uh, Alex, and he, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, CEO, founder, Divergence uh, Neuro. What's the best way for uh, people to check out uh, more of your uh, site, uh, Alex? Yeah, thank you for having me again. It's been such an honor uh, to share the space with, with uh, uh, all of you. And uh, the best way to stay uh, current with us is either uh, follow us on social media at Divergence Neuro. So that's Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Uh, and also, you know, um, we always post our updates on www.divergenceneuro.com slash news. Um, so feel free to follow us on any of those channels. Um, you know, we're, uh, we're releasing something every month, um, that augments our platform in terms of both research and, uh, and clinical products. So, uh, we'll be exciting here. Thanks again for, for having me, Pete and, uh, and Jay and Laura. Thanks. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure and we'll have all the links in the podcast notes and I get 80% of it right, Alex. So ch- check on me tomorrow. Okay. Amazing. Thank you very much. <laughs> Great stuff. <laughs> we, th- we thank you all for listening to NeuroNoodles, Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast. We'd like to thank our Patreon business supporters. Outrageous Baking is a dedicated gluten-free bakery. It has been around for 15 years. Check them out at outrageousbaking.com. Tortalk wants more people to discover Texas speech at tortalk.se. And Alternative Behavioral Therapy they're a neurofeedback service in Vancouver, Washington. Ask for Joshua M. Great service out there. We'd also like to thank our supporters, EEG and me, Mara, Sadia M., and Jonathan Rowan, January Terrell. Hey, do you have an idea for a topic or a guest? Please email me, Pete at neuronoodle.com, or leave a voicemail in the podcast notes. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And hey, if you really, really, really like us, you can always buy us a coffee on Patreon slash NeuroNoodle. We love our Patreon peeps, don't we, Jay? Absolutely. They get great coverage here. (laughs) Oh, cue the music. 